Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. So I say post-Christmas, one day after, when we have people to have some time, I get to have Kelly Woodruff. And I thought I had reached out to you because you were friends on Facebook and I worked with you, but I realized I have never actually invited you. So when you said yes, I was thrilled. And it's a perfect week because as you say, it's after it's after Christmas and I'm off between Christmas and New Year's. So it all worked out perfectly as it was meant to. Right. I always call this, it's kind of like the Christmas hangover of a lot of right. food and a lot of family where people are like, oh my gosh, I just going to lay on the couch and like not do anything. So I appreciate you doing this today. My pleasure. So I, we're starting out with me not knowing anything except we're in the same show. Cause sometimes we do this whole pre recording thing and sometimes we freewheel it. So when you said you were good with that, I'm like, that's way more fun because I think most people get surprised at the stories, stories that pop out. Like I'll ask a question all of a sudden, like the memory goes, Oh my gosh, I have this story. I forgot I had. So that's kind of the fun of just seeing where it goes. So I would love to know where you grew up and uh, if dance, you know, when it came into your life and why. So um, (laughs) I actually grew up in Florida outside of Tampa in a, in a small sort of um, not quite rural. It was a bedroom community of Tampa uh, about 30 minutes outside of the center of Tampa. And um, I was always kind of that kid. Uh, it, we lived where we lived was a little bit isolated. And but ironically, I'm going to tell you one of my neighbors in just a second. Um, but anyway, I was always that kid. That I was always interested in, you know, arty stuff. I had love to draw and paint. And at the same time, we had horses and we lived on a river and we water skied. So I had a kind of, you know, that part of my childhood was um uh, and fortunately, and also part of the story is my parents were both older. I was the much youngest of three. Um, there are 17 years between my sister and I. So, um, you know, they were very relaxed about kind of letting me go and do what I wanted to do as far as, you know, you want to draw? Sure. Or you want to play the violin? Sure. Or you want to whatever, do that. Um, and so, uh, interestingly enough, for some reason, when I was in, uh, just started in high school, which was pretty late, I suddenly just got this bug that I wanted to be Gene Kelly. Mm-hmm. Weirdly. I don't know why Gene. <laughs> and as it turns out, two doors down from us in this, really in this really like kind of neighborhood out in the middle of nowhere was a woman who taught dance in her, um, in her house. She had emptied the living room full of furniture it was a ranch style house, you know, a big, long living room. And she'd put in a bar and mirrors. Her husband put in a bar and mirrors. And so um, I started taking dance when I was like, like, I think like a sophomore in high school and maybe even a junior. I don't know. And um, it wasn't it, it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to be a dancer, but I, I knew that I kind of wanted to be this musical actor. And I thought that the deal was to get as much all different kinds of training as possible. So at the same time, I found a voice teacher and I actually got a job as a puppeteer with the local Tampa library and sort of just kind of like tried to dive into it all. So I, I, um, when I graduated from high school, I went to Florida State University, which had a really good theater and dance department. And I actually um, went there for just a couple of years and then as a theater major, and then I got a job in Atlanta 
and said to my parents, as soon as the job's over, I'll go back to school. <laughs> I never went back to school. Um, and so I left and went to Atlanta really young. Like I, I think I was just maybe like just turned 19 or something. And I moved to Atlanta and uh, took this job in a, in a musical cabaret and then lived in Atlanta for a couple of years and did some local like dinner theater. Atlanta had a pretty decent theater scene at the time um, and took a few more dance classes and sort of was just, I don't know, kind of stumbling around truthfully. I mean, I was 19 years old. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I had, um, I was in a show with a girl and we had another friend that we had been in another show with. And for some reason, we all got in our heads. The thing to do was that we would go to Las Vegas and we would get a job in Las Vegas. So we literally packed up got in the car. I left my entire apartment behind with my roommate, got in a car, drove to Las Vegas and started basically cold calling all the company managers at the time. Like you could do that. Like that was <laughs> like, you know, we just called up and said, hi, do you need, you know, do you need any dancers or you whatever? And, and, and it worked. I mean, it was ridiculous. We, we had a, a, a the first audition we had was at the um, Stardust and we didn't get it. Neither one of us got it. I got kept, which I thought was a pretty good sign. And then I think the next day, or maybe two days later, I think we we had one more audition, I think, at the Tropicana. And then the, she she got kept to be a can-can dancer and eventually got hired. And then <clears throat> the next day I went, uh, we called Fluff at MGM. And she said, well, come on in. And I went in and she had me do like some pot of berets and a pirouette. And she said, well, I don't need anybody here, but they need somebody in Reno. So um, I'm going to call the company manager and tell them that I found a boy for them and they need somebody and I'm sending you there. And wow. I was like, uh, 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 uh. so I flew back to Atlanta, packed up my clothes and not the apartment. Again, left all that stuff in my roommate. You guys deal with it. I don't know. I'm leaving. Um, and flew to Reno in the middle of, I mean, it was, I think I got there literally, I think I got there right maybe the first or second week of November. And mm. coincidentally, there was a guy in the show at the time, and I can't remember his last name, his first name was Ricky, he was a singer. And he was from Atlanta, or he had worked in the theater community in Atlanta. So my friends kind of hooked me up with him. And that was my, he was like my first roommate. And I, I out of like, just showed up and I mean, my parents, who are still living in Florida at this point, were telling like, you're doing what? You're going where? <laughs> what? And I was like, yeah, I got this job and it's cool. And I, you know, this is the salary and I'm excited. That's more money I ever made. And see ya. And um, showed up at Reno and and that's how that's how I ended up there. And it oh was actually, it was, the, I remember I, it started snowing the the day after I got there. And we were living out of town, like out in the direction of Truckee, like a little bit out of town, like, um, and I thought to myself, what in the God's hell am I doing here? What am I doing? <laughs> that seems to be the... most people's reaction to Reno when they first see it. Like, right. oh, what did I sign I up for? And living in the middle of nowhere in this apartment with this guy, you know, this guy, a friend of friends, who was a nice guy. Was all, that was all fine. And um, I was like, all right, okay. And uh Dear Adrian Lapeltier, uh was the okay. dance captain at the time, and he put me into the show. And um, yeah, that's how it all started. Uh, I will tell you right up front, 
when I got there, I was a mess. I was a mess. I mean, I had not been like, you know, I had not been a serious dancer. I was kind of the dancer that sort of, I was like a singer who could do it and whatever, you know, I mean, I was blessed. I was fairly tall. Um, and, but I mean, I was a mess and poor Adrian. <laughs> Adrian this is what they sent you. <laughs> exactly. Adrian and Adrian, God bless him. He, beat me into shape enough so that I could get into the show. At the time, um, Bernard was the company manager. It's before Jillian crucially yeah. took over. So you're pretty and early I, in there. And I do remember Bernard just like walking by as I was rehearsing between shows or something and just shaking his head and rolling his eyes. Oh <laughs> so I have a yeah. question too, when you started, because there's people that, like I have a dance studio, we have adults, we've got advanced beginners, but there are people that would be beginners their whole life. There's some people that get in there. Like I've seen some, especially for male dancers that start later. If the natural facility is there, they just take off. And sometimes they skip a few steps or professional before they really got all the foundations under them. But there's, did you take to it right away? Did it feel natural to you or what did you have um, to struggle? You know, it was, it, it's, that's a really interesting question. I, I think that in hindsight, I'm going to tell you that I struggled but at the same time, I liked it so much. I found this sort of physicality. I had been a fat kid. That was also part of the sort of pre-story. Like I was a fat oh. kid and I started swimming when I was a uh, freshman in high school and lost all this weight and suddenly came out of my shell. And I found this thing that I love to do, which is dancing, right? I just, I just love doing it. I love the expression of it. I don't think that I was ever a natural talent. I wasn't very, I wasn't very flexible and I always had to work really hard, but what happened was, um, in the interest of full disclosure, because that's who I am these days, um, I became boyfriends with one of the acts in the show. And he was the flyer. Jerry DeWert was the conductor. Oh, yeah. I remember Jerry. My, yeah, wonderful. My, he was my boyfriend. And he said to me, um, in all his Czechoslovakian-ness, he said, so what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I don't know. You know, I think if I'm going to do this, I'd like to be a principal someday. And he goes, he said to me, you're never, never going to be principal unless you go to dance class. <laughs> you do not know how to dance. And I was like, oh, okay. So I sought out a ballet class. He said, you should go to ballet. You need foundation. So I saw that ballet class and I fan, found Maggie Banks, who I oh, know yeah. is a through line for so many people. And I actually went to Maggie before she even moved to her bigger studio in Sparse when she was in a little tiny space, not too far from my house, um, which was in Reno, uh, in uh, off of Plum Lane. She had a little tiny studio there. And I started going and I ended up going like, I would go every day. I would get up and go to a 430 ballet class every day. And I did that for the entire time that I lived in Reno. And wow. it was through that. And also from Jerry, who was a really good, um, he was a really good performance coach. And I think because of those two things, I'm, I'm sure uh, certain of those two things, actually, I actually kind of, as you say, in a way, kind of jumped ahead really quickly a lot. I mean, I was really into it. You know, I, I don't know if you remember, you had the experience, but, you know, the boys would get together, uh, particularly James Taylor, who's a friend of mine, you know, was a closer during the time. We would always get together between shows and and practice, like do practice our pirouettes, you know, yeah. and stuff 
like that, right? And I think through all of that, and that and Jerry, you know, coming up backstage afterwards, go, no, you have to look up when you do, blah, 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 you know, <laughs> give it more presentation. You know, I think between all of those things, that's really, that's really what kind of, as you say, jumped me ahead. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of how that Yeah, happens. yeah, because I feel like there's, there's 150 people in that cast. Like, I was in heaven because there was free classes on stage between classes and you could pick four because that stage is so big. I was taking class in at Maggie, there's another stars of tomorrow. I think it was. And there was all these, uh, I think Debbie Reynolds had her boy dancers. Like there were so many dancers in smaller acts that were teaching. So I was in heaven because I had only done ballet. I never did jazz. So I, every day would take class, but there were people like Kathy and James would get there an hour before and do a whole bar warm up. And there's people that never took a class again because like, why I made it, why would I take class? Right. So there's a lot. So you have to kind of find the people who are also hungry or push you because you could just stay there. But I go, I want to be ready for an audition when I leave here. But it also was just so much fun to have exposure to people from right. all over the world, teaching class with different styles. Mm -hmm. Like that, I feel like that was the epitome for me of, choice of having 100%. some of the best classes and, I, and i'm i mean i'm so blessed because of what came from me what came afterwards for me i'm so blessed to have had that time and you know i was also we also did um I was one of the people of uh, Maggie's people that did started doing the Nutcracker for her at holidays and yeah. then i started doing i also started doing the operas for her because my voice teacher in Reno was connected to the opera there. I found a voice teacher when I got there. And so because of that sort of whole connection, like I really, I was really able to do a lot more stuff. And, and that was also ultimately the reason that I ended, ended up leaving the show kind of as soon as I did, because I really felt like, you know, I, I, I felt like, it's it's so it's so interesting to think about when you you know I have to tell you when you when you reached out to me I started really thinking about those times and I do have a couple of funny stories about the show itself. Oh, though. good. <laughs> but um, but I kept thinking I keep I was thinking about those times and thinking about how you know on some level I was completely clueless because there was so much opportunity there. Right, we were in a fairly small town the the talent pool as it were wasn't huge you know we had, they had and yet they had brought in all of these dancers from all over the world who were some really i mean come on there were some amazing dancers you know leslie bandy and yeah. liz elliott probably liz elliott who i think to this day was the most beautiful woman i'd ever seen on stage yep. in my <laughs> life you know um and and you know um just i mean there were so many really talented people there and and to be sort of in the middle of that and just be like, well, this is fun. I want to I want to even do more than that. You know, like I want to do this. I want to, you know, and um, and so after a couple of a couple, two and a half years, I think that I was there, then I decided that I would leave and I would do I, I actually got this lounge show for Jerry Jackson at the Sahara with five girls, myself, a magician and the band. And so I, that was my next step is that I did that for a year after I left, I left Hello Hollywood. And again, I think it's just such a, what came afterwards of being in New York and being in the talent pool in New York was such a different <laughs> experience. You know, it was such a, it was just such a, uh, I mean, in New York is New York and, and it, it was just such a different thing. I, I know for a fact, if it hadn't been from my time in Reno, of course, I wouldn't have survived and gotten all the opportunities I did here. But at the same time, 
I'm just I'm just so in awe of how at the time that I was in Reno, I was so clueless about how lucky we all were. Oh, my gosh. And all that. You That's know. a lot of the interviews like we go, wait, we were just like, I didn't know who was Miss Bluebell. I auditioned for Miss Bluebell personally, had a, a really intense conversation, signing my contract, deciding what's good. And I had no idea her history. I didn't know who Don Arden was. I just went on to the next thing and the next thing. And it's right. 40 years later, I went, what? What? Exactly. <laughs> Did you exactly. get to do, because I know like Craig Seeley, David Doyle, people, a lot of the guys were doing a lot of extra gigs, like night, like three in the morning things at bars like did you ever do that i feel like there was people who were always no, creating I didn't, comedy I didn't and- some, yeah i didn't do so much of that stuff i sort of went to see all those guys do that but i was really more focused on the like you know again trying to get my ballet technique down and then doing the ballets for maggie and then doing the operas for maggie and then because um, um ted puffer was the director of nevada opera at the time you know he sort of his student was my voice teacher, Susan Frank, who's just departed not too long ago. She, we just lost mm-hmm. her a few months ago. Um, and because of that, then Susan was like, well, not only can he can dance, but he can also sing. And Ted was like, all right, well, then you should do Prince Orlovsky and the Flatermouse. And I was like, OK, what's that? I'll do that. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, it was that it was. And I was, you know, we were all and I think this is really also a, a good there's a good chunk of us. Yes. Some people were just happy to just be there and have the job and whatever. But I think a lot of us were like sponges. You know, we were just Mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's cool. Let's do, you know, that's fun. You know, Maggie first proposed doing the ballet. We were all like, sure, let's do the ballet. You know, I mean, it was just, it was, it was that, it was that time. And um, yeah. And again, I think I was so, we were all so fortunate to have that opportunity. Right. What well, sounds like even your your audition thing, like, I don't know, let's go to Vegas, like <laughs> just not really knowing because there's some people that have very like, I have to do this step, this step, this step. It all has to line up. And there's some of us like, how did I get here? I just said, this sounds like right. a good idea. Correct. And it took you on this great ride that if I had tried to make it happen, would not ever have been what I did. Right. And I'm so grateful a- to just have that openness and all of the people are like, do you know there's a show here or this person? There's a show in Puerto Rico. I'm like, I want to go to Puerto Rico. Like I just. Right feel like the freest in my life like when you're in your 20s and you're not tied down and you can just go so did you ever go back and get your stuff in your apartment um is it still matter, there as a matter of fact <laughs> i i had i charged a friend of mine to pack up the stuff that was mine that i wanted to keep and put it in storage and then they moved on i and eventually i did get it i actually <laughs> have some of it in my apartment here as a matter of fact <laughs> a couple of the a couple of the best things that were in my came from my mom um but what was I going to say? Um, oh, yeah. The other thing I think that that was really um, that I was unaware of at the time that just from what you said, I think is really something to point out is that we were unlike in New York. I'm going to say this. We were sort of like, as you said, Puerto Rico. OK, I'll go to Puerto Rico. You know, for me. OK, Jerry Jackson's doing a new show. Hey, I'm going to send in my resume. Oh, I got it. I'll do that. Like, there was there seemed to be like this fluidity and and ease of of um finding a new show once you were sort of into mm-hmm. in that circle that um i think that we i had no idea at the time i had i had had as as i think back you know i had one other experience prior to even college that was sort of uh, plays really important later in in my story about how i ended up where i ended up and that is when I was a senior in high school, after I graduated, 
my senior year in high school, my girlfriend and I at the time got into my car and drove from Tampa, Florida to New York City. Oh, we wow. Friends, we had some friends who lived in Teaneck across the bridge. And we stayed there and we saw this when I first saw my first Broadway show, which was Chicago. This is 1975. And I mean, I'm a kid, 17 years old. I haven't even turned 18 yet. And saw Chicago, saw the magic show with Doug Henning. And the third thing that we saw was we got a matinee ticket to a chorus line, which had just moved uptown from downtown. And um, I was in the Schubert Theater not too long ago seeing something and sitting on the first row of the balcony. And I turned to my, my boyfriend, I said, see those two seats down there at the end? That's where I sat when I saw a chorus line. <sighs> And I said, when it was over, I turned to my girlfriend and I said, I'm going to do that. I am going to do yeah. that. I am going to do this show. I, well, we were just blown away. We were mesmerized. So jump cut ahead. When the show at the Sahara was ending, um, Chorus Line was having auditions in Las Vegas. So I flew to Las Vegas. We're still doing the show at night. It was almost over. But I flew to Las Vegas and I auditioned. And uh, they call at, at the time the chorus line audition was you step forward, you said your name, you did a double pirouette right and left. Yep, I did they, that they audition. Kept <laughs> they yep. kept you working. Yeah. So they kept they kept me, and I think they taught us the opening combination. And they called me over at the end. They said, um, Bob Avion was running the audition, and he said, um, I'd like you to come back tomorrow to a callback. And I said, Listen, this is me at the time, cocky me. I said. Listen, I have to fly home to Reno and do a show tonight. I'm I'll come back if it's going to be worth my while. But please don't be kind, okay? Like either just tell me not yet or whatever, but I because I'm going to have to pay for flights. Well, at the time by the way, flights from Vegas to Reno were like $49. So, <laughs> but at the time it's a thing. So he goes, "No, no, you should come back." So, I went home, did the show, got up the next morning, flew back down. At the end of that day, they said, "Okay, well, we're going to call you." in a couple of weeks and let you know where we want you to go. Do you want to go to, you know, whether we're going to put you on the road or we're going to put you in New York or, and I said, well, cause somebody had tipped me off. They said, um, if you get, if you get chorus line, try to get on the line, even if you're on the road, don't let them put you as an understudy, even if you're in New York, because once you're an understudy, it's really hard to break out of it. So of course, again, me cocky self, I said, that's great. If it's possible, I'd really like to go with whatever company where I could actually go to be on the line. And he, I think mm -hmm. Bob probably just looked at me and went, okay. <laughs> so I went home and I'm all excited. And I it's like, it's going to happen. Huh? And I'm finishing the show and time's passing and I'm finishing the show. And he had given me his number on a piece of paper. And I'm waiting and the show's over I think and I'm still waiting and I haven't heard anything and so I called the number and they said okay they'll they took a message it was the number at the public his office at public theater and um said okay well we'll tell him you called and I called a couple of times never heard back never heard back never called uh -huh. me back. but I thought to myself you know if you got that close in the first audition you ever auditioned for Chorus Line. This was a time when Chorus Line, remember, super hot. Everybody wanted to do it. You know, yeah. I had a friend I had worked with in Atlanta who had gotten the first national. And she was like, 
I mean, it was the deal, right? And um, I thought, you know, the stories were leading about people auditioning, auditioning over and over and over. And I thought, if if I got that close, I probably, I'm, I maybe I'll have like a decent shot about being in New York. So that's when I made the decision to pack up and leave Reno and go to the big city. There's something that I hear in so many people's stories. It's like this naivete and like, of course I can. We didn't know we couldn't. And so I look at a lot of dancers now, maybe because there's just not as many opportunities as we have that can I, or I don't know. I just feel like a lot of us got jobs because we didn't, I walked in the Stardust without asking, went backstage. Like most of us didn't know we were not supposed to do that. We're like, right. I'd like to audition. I think I'm ready. And I think that there was that, I don't know if it's cockiness. I think it's a great naivete. And like, of course I can. Maybe because we, maybe, I think a lot of us find we had someone who maybe gave us one positive affirmation that we needed to go do it. That makes sense. Cause it doesn't make any sense. Like none of our stories no. make any sense no. to go for this. I mean, sheer dumb luck. I used to say, you yeah. know, it was just like, I mean, I always counted myself really, really lucky because things just seemed to like, Oh, I'm going to get a job in Atlanta. I'll leave school. Oh, I'm going to go to Vegas. Oh, I ended up in Reno. Oh, you know, like that. <laughs> um, but before we go ahead, I do want to tell one cute story about my first night of going into the show. Yes. Love because, that. Because it was <laughs> to this day, it is I actually tell this story at parties because I think it's so funny. It's so cute. Um, so here I am, right? You know, this raw, you know, mess of a kid. And what happened at the time, I, I think that was pre it was pretty standard, was that you would sort of they would teach you a number, you know, they teach you a couple of numbers, but then they'd start putting you in numbers one at a time, right? Yeah. So the first number that Adrian uh, I got put into was Knob Hill right? The big ballroom scene in Knob mm -hmm. Hill. And it was pretty easy. Like it was all just triplets and swaying and stuff. And I was like, I can do that. You know, Adrian must've been like, yeah, that he can do. Um, <laughs> triplets. I did triplets in dance class in college. I know what those are. Um, <laughs> and so all good, you know, we rehearsed ourselves by ourselves and Adrian, you know, explained where the circles were going to be and what numbers you were on when and all that stuff. And then you take the girl's hand here and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, great. And then he says, so we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to do a put in rehearsal for you between shows and we'll put you into a second show. And this was literally, I'm not exaggerating because I think we were pretty short on boys at the time because Jerry had moved up and Neil had left and whatever, whatever. Um, I think it was like the third day that I was there. Right. So here I am, you know, two days of rehearsal and, you know, third night in Reno. So we do the put in rehearsal and everybody is come back from dinner and it's like, you know, whatever, quarter till half hour or something, 15 minutes till half hour or something. And so all the girls, everybody's there and they're all in street clothes and sweatpants and, you know, their hair's down and, you know, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, okay, this is, and this is Rosita, your partner. And then you're going to go to Donna here and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're all like, hi, how are you, dear? How are you? How are you? Ah, good, good, good. So we do the number. I'm all good. And then you're just like, wow, that's great. Good. Uh, you're good. Okay. So I'm all, you know, I go back, I get my costume on, I wait for the number, I go out, I take Rosita's hand, the lights come up, and I look around and I realize I don't recognize a single face <laughs> because now everybody is in the Knob Hill costume. They all have the same wig, they all have the same makeup, everybody looks exactly alike. <laughs> 
circles. So we're doing circles and you have to turn around and change partners and get somebody else's hand. And I had no idea <laughs> whose hand I was supposed to take because they didn't look anything like they had looked in rehearsal. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening? Oh God. And I'll never forget, God bless them. Obviously, everyone really quickly got what was going on. And all I heard the entire number was, over here, dear. Take my hand. Now go over there, dear. Go on. You got it. It's okay. All of my Australian girlfriends for years and years were like, over here, dear. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, oh. I just know that that translates later in life because we had to adapt. You have to work as a unit. I think the work ethic that comes out of that, because it is insane when you watch that show. Because I do the same. I got put into heat wave first, up and downstairs. I don't think you put the costume on until the night. You don't get to even practice in it. So, and it is like, who are these people? All I said was a, a storm of red feathers, the back of people's heads, whoever were my mark. And you get through it. And no, and I remember, because I was topless. And I remember that was a big deal with my family. So when I called home, my mom's like, how was it being topless? I go, I don't know. I knew how to get where I was and it got, you get done and go, was I topless? I just, I didn't die and I didn't hit anybody and I didn't fall off. So that's success. And then it's many weeks later you go, Oh, that's Rosita. <laughs> or that's, exactly. that's whatever. Cause it is. That's oh my gosh. Oh, I see. That's it is a lot. There's a lot of people moving and then, but then you realize the floors are opening up and other things are happening and you go just look, look for your person, look for your mark. But it is, it does make us fast on our feet. Yeah, I mean, it, the floors opening is another another one of my stories, which I do tell is you recall in Top Hat how we came over the stairs, right? And we had to change real quick. And then we rushed onto the elevator. The elevator went down, the curtain went up, and then we came up and over the stairs, right? From kind yeah. of below. So it had that effect. And I was behind, I was in the second line of boys on stage left in the middle. And Ted... Uh, I can't remember his last name. That's so funny. Uh, oh, Roberts. Ted Roberts was in front of me and their line danced on the rain trough, right? I'll never forget it. We came over the top. We came down to our places. We did the first thing where you go bump with the cane and the rain trough opened and Ted disappeared, right? I, I, to this day, have this image in my mind that it was like a cartoon where his, his top hat was literally left in the air, like going, yeah. <laughs> and he just went, boom. Oh, my God. I've and heard this story, all, but I've never heard it from your point of view. All, oh, my God. We were all just like, what? And the next thing you know, you see one of Ted's hands and the other of Ted's hands. <laughs> and he pulls himself up out of the rain trough. Okay. He gets up. He looks around. He picks up his hat. And he looks around where we are. And he kind of just goes, oh, well. And he just goes back to oh doing the choreography. Now, this is my memory. I have a feeling I might have inflated it just a hair, but I swear that I swear uh, that that happened. And he was like, and I remember that our part of the stage, he got applause like from the tables in front. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I've heard the story you fell in. I've heard the top, but I've never heard how like to see someone go it. in there. And then I, I heard the story about the horse and I've heard these stories. Sometimes I'm like, was I in the show or do I just think I was in the show because I've heard these stories? No, the the night the horse went through the rain trough also, and they stopped and whatever. And then I was actually another person in a horse story that was actually me that I haven't actually heard, and I haven't heard anyone else tell it in all the kind of stuff that I've seen of people talking about the show is that um, I was swinging 
mostly because of Jerry. I think, you know, he started pressuring Julian, Julian to let me like kind of move up and understand, you know, I turned, I, they made me a swing and then I started un understanding a couple of principal things. One of the things I understood was um, pot of toile in space, you know, the, the pot of seas rather. Yeah. And the other thing that I did was because I had horses as a kid, I swung out the principals in the Annie Get Your Gun at the beginning, where it's two guys yeah. and, and Kitty in the middle singing No Business Like Show Business, right? So I had done it a couple of times on the horse that Mitch Rishwi normally rode. And that horse, to get it to go, you kind of had to like, even to get it to walk, you kind of had to be like, and it was a whole thing to get certified on the horse. You had to go out to the ranch and ride around and show them you knew how to ride and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, of course, as usual, like, oh, no problem. I grew up riding. <laughs> so I had done this one, the one track a few times. And then one night, David Doyle was out and he was the other track on the other horse. And no one bothered to tell me that the two horses had very, very different personalities and sort of, you know, rain triggers. So I, the curtain went up. And in anticipation of the usual stuff I had to do, like I like gave the horse the kick and the horse leapt forward and turned the corner and his, his feet slid out from underneath him and he started to slide toward the audience. I had, was off. I mean, I was, I was on my feet and he slid in the direction of the, literally in the direction of tables, people screaming. He finally stopped, thank God, before he hit the table jumped up i grabbed him and sort of ran off stage oh my god <laughs> so two things one that was the last time i ever swung that spot oh wow yeah did not let me back on the horse understandably and the other interesting thing was i found out later i looked at mitch later on in the number as we we're like doing the final parade you know where everybody came back on stage and he's as white as a sheet. He's as white as the costumes, which were all white sequins. He was white. And he just looked, I just looked like he had just, I don't know, seen a ghost. And and I I was like, what? Are you okay? Afterwards, I'm like, are you okay? And he goes, I can't talk about it right now, but I'll tell you later. It turns out years before at the Stardust, there had been part of one of the production numbers was that they had two horse that were jou that jousted. Okay, so they had two horses, two riders, and they were on treadmills and they started off walking and then they started trotting right towards each other, these jousters, and they en ended up running. And then as they were running, the gig was that the the turntables turned and they were now running towards the audience on these treadmills. Right. That was that was the thing. And it was a very big deal. It was really super exciting climax of that number of, of that show in the Stardust. And there was an accident one night where one of the turntable, one of the treadmills froze and the horse leapt into the audience, right? Nobody was killed, but there were some people, it was a big deal. You can actually look it up, you know, in Stardust history is like a big thing. There's multi-million dollar lawsuits, all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out that Mitch had been the rider <gasps> on that horse. Oh my gosh. What I understand now again. Wow, there's are stories, but I believe that that's the truth. And that he, when he saw me going, we saw the horse going towards the um the audience. He totally oh. lived major PTSD and uh, and totally was like, um, yeah.
<laughs> my- oh wow there because like there's stories of the line i think the line had just left when i got in the show because jerry tassin talks about spring everybody and then there's horse regularly accidents. yeah but this is like and there's poop on the stage like we're singing the most beautiful girls and you have to pick up your cape so you don't drag it through horse shit but this was just normal and now you know there's orangutans that were abused so now we go i think it's a good thing that they don't put animals in there because now i've done the podcast i have heard hundreds of stories of animal accidents i'm like maybe that wasn't a good idea yeah even, spectacular I mean, but the, a lot of things went wrong yeah it's a, it's really even amazing that the horse that went through the rain trough and i was there that night too um didn't didn't break a leg or anything they got him out and you know everything was wow. okay but oh ow, ooh. yeah oh and i've heard a lot of like the dancers crying like stop the show you know because like sometimes things keep going i'm like that's a little absurd but like you know the show must go on people are falling through, through the floor it's totally fine so what made you and you had an opportunity like were you feeling kind of done with hello hollywood like ready to move on you just so, had so much good training in that time yeah you know i think and it's interesting you should ask that question because i was actually again in the last since we arranged to do this kind of thinking about why did i like what was it why did i leave and i think that i had a sense that I knew that because of the way I had come into the show, it was going to be really difficult for them to sort of rewrite their opinion about what I did. Right. I mean, I was mm-hmm. lucky they kept offering me contracts, which, you know, I'm, I'm really surprised that I was offered a second contract. But after that, you know, I did, I mean, I mean, I was doing the job. It was fine. Obviously I got moved up and whatever, but I think that I think that I knew on some level that I would never I wouldn't be able to do everything I wanted to do if I stayed. And um, because of the circumstances of being able to do the lounge show and then getting the, you know, getting the um, having the chorus line audition. And, you know, I just kind of thought, okay, I I think it's time to move on. But two things are interesting about that. One is I always had in the back of my mind that if anything, if it really, if I really crashed and burned when I got to New York, that I could always go back and just ask them to hire me back. And they probably would, right. That I'd probably be able to get back in the show and, you know, work and make some money or whatever. The other thing that's interesting is even to this day, I still dream that that's what's happening and that I'm going back into the show and usually can't remember, you know, the steps or I miss the costume change to get on the elevator going down or, you know, some anxiety dream around that. But it, it very often I dream about the fact that I did end up going back to this show and <laughs> this happened. So, which is interesting. It was it's such in a- so many people's dreams because somebody was saying in your twenties that your dreams are technicolor. Like, you know, some of your dreams are kind of fuzzy and it doesn't look like that. Are we lived in technicolor? So there's so many, like we, was it 40 something years we did that. And I don't have dreams about trying to unlock my locker at high school anymore. I have dreams that I can't get on stage fast enough. I can't, somebody move my headdresses. So whenever there's anxiety in my life, it always goes back to, hello. I did all the other shows. I did smaller shows, but because that show was so big, that anxiety is like, or like there are a lot of people say like, I should have my act together. Or I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. I don't know the steps, like being found out that we don't know what we're doing somehow reverts back to that time of no, not knowing what we were doing. For me, I have I have three, I have three sort of show experiences that were sort of my penultimate thing that 
you know, in my life that that really were these giant landmarks and and really important and and amazing experiences. And the first one was Hello Hollywood, Hello. Mm-hmm. The second one was I did end up doing a chorus line. In fact, yay! I did. I did. Yay! I actually <laughs> did the Paris premiere of a chorus line with Don <gasps> McKechnie at the. Oh my gosh. Play. Wow. A thing. And then yeah. the third thing is when it was actually my last Broadway show, which was Will Rogers Follies. And the reason I mentioned those three things, not just a name drop, which we can talk about later, but but really all three of those are the three stress dreams that I have. I dream about chorus line that I can't remember the tap combination, that I can't <laughs> remember the damn tap combination. And I dream about Will Rogers that we come, we, again, there was, um, there were stairs and we had to come up and over the stairs. It's a theme in my life. And I, rem- and I think all the time, my stress is, is that we're coming up over the stairs and I'm going into my place to do the big Will Rogers tap number break this a big opening finale, the finale of the opening number. And I, I'm coming down and I cannot, remember the first part of the tap break and i am so stressed out i pan i get so panicky of course that i wake up I'm like, you know. yeah but those three shows are like my three the three things that i when i'm stressed out that that's where it, all my anxiety lands in my dreams there's way more um at stake in those kind of shows like i've done like cruise ship shows if you screw up it's not the same as if you screw up in one of those shows there's way more at stake and way more it's super obvious. Like I'm learning a favorite son from Will Rogers. One of my friends did the national tour. And so we have the tambourine hats. That number is so fun, but all of us are sweating profusely because if you screw up one count, it even missing one count, it's like, you can't hide it. Like, oh, I fell out of a pirouette or something. It's like all eyes go to red glove, blue glove. Correct. But those are the stress dreams we're having because it, it matters in that whole machine of how some of those shows everyone has to be on where other shows you could be like, yeah, I was having a bad night. Right. Exactly. So was New York your goal to do Broadway? Yes. Um, I, when I left, when I left Reno, I um, ended up going home to my parents and uh, staying there for a couple of months and then coming to New York and auditioning and getting a couple of shows out, out of the city. Um, when I was doing one of those shows, I met my best friend, one who became my best friend at the time. And he actually got me to audition for a big summer stock company in Ohio called the Kinley Players. And that's where I've I got heard of them. And that's where I got my equity card and came back to the city. And all through all that time, I was working as a chorus boy, you know, doing chorus work or um, a dancer, singer, dancer sort of thing. But all that time, I really wanted to. I really, my, my real focus is I really wanted to be an actor. I wanted to to do leads and I wanted to do leads in, in musicals, but also leads in straight plays and whatever. So my long-term goal, and again, in that, in the, you know, the innocence of youth, I guess, you know, the long-term goal was to sort of work my way up and through and become, you know, to, to become and start doing roles, which eventually did happen. I mean, um, and then, Obviously, Broadway was part of that whole plan and was lucky enough to do that a couple of times. And I ended up um, doing a lot of sort of where my career was seemed to be moving just not as quickly as I wanted it to was I ended up doing a lot of roles in in um, regional theater and that sort of thing and tours and that stuff. And Mm -hmm. so. 
as I as that part of my career started to grow and I was also starting to do some commercials, I did a little bit of work on some soap operas and that sort of thing. A um, couple of, you know, tiny nothing movie things, walk-ons or, you know, I was in the in the movie of a chorus line in the big chorus. And, you know, as all that stuff is happening, you know, the reality started to kind of come clear that if I, it was going to be a while before I was going to be doing that sort of thing in, in New York on Broadway. So my Broadway gigs were again, chorus work like Will Rogers, which was an enormous amount of fun. It was the, the last Broadway show I did. And, and just so much, it was such a fun experience. I went in as a replacement and, um, and it was, it, it, came at a time in my life by this time now that I had been in the business, I really been in the business for almost 20 years. And I kind of started to feel like I had done pretty much everything I'd wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, chorus line. Yeah. <laughs> international tour all over the world, you know, and that, and then Broadway and, again, some commercials and TV and, and, and I kind of started to get a little disenchanted, but just, I think the reality of, of what it was going to mean in the long term started to hit. And I, I was really lucky when I came to New York because I was tall and, you know, could dance and had a nice American look. I did a lot of industrials at the time. That was a really big thing in the eighties. Yeah. The Millican show had already finished, but but there were all of the big companies, the big car companies and uh, Frito-Lay and I mean, all the big corporations, AT&T and all of these different things used to do these these industrial shows. And I got into that circuit kind of as and that was my that was my other work (laughs) rather than having to wait tables or, you know, do any of those things. So I did a lot of industrials. So when Will Rogers was done, um, I almost immediately got a, a, a job doing an AT&T industrial in San Diego. And it was a small industrial. There weren't very many people in it. I think there was only maybe eight of us total or something. And a lot of times for industrials, you had to get up and do breakfast shows. And so I was up in the morning and I was being a dancing fiber optic cable. And I was wearing a black card <laughs> with day glow like plastic fiber optic cables sewn on the costume and i it was early and i was tired <laughs> and i did this show and i got off the, i got off the got off stage and i went back and called my partner at the time and i went you know what i don't i don't know how long i can do this i don't yeah. need a dancing <laughs> fiber optic cable i mean i just came from being on broadway and here i am in a ballroom in san diego in the morning know, and so that was sort of my kind of like my you know epiphany moment where i was i was saying you know i it's okay i can i can let it go and i'm i feel complete you know i feel yeah. blessed and and um yeah that's kind of that was that sort of how which that, is how. good i think there's people go out way too early from injury or pregnant like when we got pregnant for me i just thought i have to be a conservative christian girl not wear g-strings anymore i'm like damn it i turned down such fun jobs but i think all of us have to come to that point like why was i done because you can't do it forever and like just having an audition 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 i've heard the new york thing can just kill your soul if you're just you don't have security the same even if you are working constant it's a little bit hard to plan your life when you don't know if you've got the next Correct. gig. 
And that that thing about planning the life, I as I say, I had this partner at the time and we had bought um, an apartment, which I actually am still sitting there. I still live here. I've been in my apartment for 31 years, 32 years. Um, beautiful. Really, we were really lucky at the time and we bought this really nice apartment um, through because of money that I had made in commercial as uh, on my commercial. As a matter of fact, I had a national commercial running. I was like, oh, down payment. Great. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of started to feel like I wasn't I was when I wasn't working. I felt it felt inequitable, you know, because he would pick up the slack and then I would have to I would go away. You know, I would go. I went away for I remember I went away for six or eight weeks around that time also and did um the a production of Singing in the Rain. I played played Don Lockwood and I got to be mm. Gene Kelly. Um, yeah. Right again <laughs> on one of those things. Okay, yeah, we did that. We did that. Did it. And um and I just remember while I was really thinking, wow, I'm away and I'm having fun and I'm making some money, but not really tons. And you know, he's there and he's having to pick up the slack and whatever. And I don't know how fair that you know, like I kind of got into that head a little bit too, like. Mm -hmm you know, it, it would be nice to have something a little more steady. So if you want to hear what happened next, I'm glad to tell you, I can tell you. Yeah. I want to lead he, into your, he, what got you into healing too, because this is a really fascinating journey. That's not predictable. So my, uh, my partner at the time is an architect, was an architect, is an architect. And I had always been interested in interior design because my mom was an interior designer. My sister's an interior designer. My sister-in-law's an interior designer. And my aunt was an interior designer. So he um, had a small firm. It was just him. And he had at the time, he only had, I think he had two employees at the time. And he would ask me, can you come in when you're not working? Would you mind coming in and helping in the office, even if it's just organizing samples or whatever? So I started doing that kind of in between gigs while I was still working. And he came home one day and he said, you know, I got a job in the office. It's a residential job. Um, he was doing mostly commercial work at the time. He said, and it's a big residential job, but I can't, they want me to do interiors too. And I can't do that. We can't do that unless you come help. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I will, for one year, I will suspend my career. I, I'll tell my agent, stop sending me out. I won't go on commercials, nothing. I won't audition. I'll give you a year. And We'll work for a year and then at the end of the year, we'll stop and we'll assess and see how it went. I'll see if I was happy, if we can make this work together. Um, and so I did. I I told my agent, you know, I'm going to take a pause, whatever. And even though a typical agent in typical agent land, you know, she would she said, oh, OK. And then for the next like six months would still call me occasionally. But I have this. Audition. I'm like, no. <laughs> and um, we did this. We did this residential job. It was a big house in Englewood, New Jersey. And um, it, it came out quite well. It was really good. And we got from that one job, we ended up getting another residential job. And then from that job, we got like three more residential jobs. And about three years later, my partner and I were sitting at dinner and he got this look on his face. He was like, oh no. And I was like, I said, what's going on? He goes, well, you know, he said, I just realized we never had that talk after a year about whether you were going to stay or not. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> I, I guess that horse has left the barn. <laughs> and um, we have been in business together ever since. We have been in business together now for almost 
it's almost 30 years. So 28 years. That oh we've my gosh. Together. Uh, wow. We've been partners in an architectural interior design firm called, it's called Bond, B-O-H-N Associates. Um, we have about, currently we have about 15 people that work for us. Um, and we have, yeah, we have done that. We now focus primarily on residential. If you anybody wants to see it, you can go look at www.bonddesign. Oh, I'm going to check that out. We'll also put it in your um, show notes, maybe, because people can check uh, that out. You can, so you can see what we do. Um, we do high-end residential, primarily New York, um, some in Miami, um, a lot in Brooklyn, down on Jersey Shore, and a lot of new builds out in the Hamptons, that sort of thing. So he's a really great architect. I guess I'm an adequate interior designer. I do. Okay. And you get to use your creative part too. Like if you leave that part as an artist to get to keep it in your life, to keep your soul fed is so important. Say it exactly. <sighs> I've always said, I said that I was really lucky because I got to still be, you know, do something creative. Um, I really, I, I really love it. I mean, I, I've always really enjoyed doing interiors anyway. I was sort of my hobby on the side. Even when I lived in Reno, I actually did a room for David Doyle of all things. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's my business partner and I are still business partners. We're no longer partner partners that we sort of laugh and say that we kind of sacrificed our personal relationship to the business relationship, but we have been in, we have been in business together all that time. So. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So what, what, cause you, you piqued my interest because you were speaking my language about healing. Um, what, so, I know you taught yoga, but like, I would love to, to hear how this, you know, you've got this job in a, a normal big person, not big person, adult life. And that's not saying that healing's not, but I feel like that there's those of us who are going to find a way yeah, to keep, it's, keep that again, fresh. As, as in many things in my life, uh, you know, luck and Providence sort of came and I was lucky enough. And I, I guess, again, able to just say, okay, well, we're going to do this now. So um, 2002 was a really rocky year for me and for us. My business partner and I split our personal relationship. I um, I had had another relationship after that that kind of had ended sort of badly. Um, I had this amazing Weimaraner um, who passed away and um, I was a mess. I was a wreck. I really was. It was a really, really rough time. And so I had a couple of friends and they said, we're all going to go to Palm Springs for a party. And why don't you come? And I said, oh, no, you know, I need to work and whatever. And my business partner said, no, you know what? You should go. You need to you need to get away and it'll be good. And it was the first time that I had really done any kind of vacation by myself, quote unquote. Um, so I went to Palm Springs, flew to Palm Springs, went, um, stayed with a friend of mine, somebody I had known in New York and my other friends were there. And so we, <clears throat> we went to this party and, <laughs> um, they ended up leaving really soon. And I was like, it was a big party, like a big dance party. And I said, and they were like, you want to come? And I was like, no, we just got here. I, you know, this is my vacation. You guys go. I'm going to stay and dance by myself for a while. So they left and I was there and I was, you know what? I was kind of dancing and I, I kind of thought to myself, I remember very specifically thinking, wow, you know what? I'm going to be okay. This is the first time I've been alone 
in years and years and years, my business partner and I were together for 10 years. I was in a six-year relationship before that kind of serial relationships. I said, I'm, I'm really going to be, I'm going to be all right. Like I'm, I'm having a decent time. Like I'm okay. Hmm. And literally less than two minutes later, this kind of face popped up on my periphery and said, hi. And I was like, hi. <laughs> and I'm trying to ignore dancing and whatever. And he popped around again. He's sort of relentless. And I finally was like, well, you want to go outside and you know, sit down and have a drink, you know, something to drink and chat. So we go outside and um, we're getting, you know, we're doing the, what do you do? What do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a, a, I have a partner in an interior design firm in New York City. What do you do? And he said, well, I actually um, do a kind of healing work. And I work for a company that teaches seminars in that work. And I said, wow, that is so L.A. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's really very L.A. of you. And he said, no, really, I really do. He said, do you want to feel it? And I was like, oh, if it'll make you go away. Yes. OK, fine. <laughs> so he goes, OK, put your hand out. So I put my hand out and he brought his hand down just slowly. And then he brought his other hand down, sort of playing. And and I thought to myself, OK, I'm either more inebriated than I thought I was <laughs> or power suggestion, or I actually feel something. And I, he goes, so what does it feel like? And I described it and one thing led to another. And we actually ended up staying in contact and we ended up dating kind of long distance. And so they were coming to New York city to teach the seminar. And he said, why don't you come and check it out? And I said, all right, I don't have anything else to do. And, you know, we were kind of having a nice a couple of dates. We went when I was somewhere, he was somewhere, you know, whatever, just gone in for about a month. And um, I ended up going to the seminar and I was really caught. I sort of found very, it was very easy for me to access these frequencies as we call them. And I was able, I think honestly, through everything that I had done to that point, including the discipline of dance and the physicality of dancing and, and the awareness of being an actor and all of the awareness stuff that they teach you and all of this stuff, I was able to quite easily sort of put my mind aside and just be in the experience of the feeling, which is how we teach this work that I, that I do to this day called reconnective healing. And through that experience, I ended up on this journey of reconnective healing, again, so blessed because my business partner was very supportive and said, hey, that's great. I think it's cool that you have something else you're doing now. And I would literally travel to teach on the weekends. I ended up traveling with my friend and we would travel and teach on the weekends. And then I'd go back to work on Monday, work Monday through Friday and Friday, I would fly out to some other city and teach. And that's how I've been doing that. I've been doing that work for now for this is my actually my 22nd year that I've been doing. I was just writing that because I'm a massage therapist. I've experienced Reiki, I've uh, some cranial sacral, I do more and mild fascia release, but the body is amazing. If we get out of the way, when we start to like, let it come through you because I, in massage school, I wanted to analyze everything and that's so hard to let go of. Then you have to like, it's already in you. So I'm going to, because I have to do continuing ed. So part of that is I'm trusting this more and more in my own healing of like, Perfect. we get out of the way, we have connections and we don't feel and we're like all missing yeah. this frequency so this got me all excited because I think it's interesting, like your life, your life takes you to these places. 
And now you're and using think, all that to help people. I, I think you'd really enjoy enjoy this because the philosophy is we don't need techniques. We don't need the the sort of like even Reiki has structure and rules of, you know, symbols and you hold your hands this way, whatever. We really recognize if we just let go and become present with these frequencies that are in and around all of us, that we can actually use them or allow them to come through us and interact with them in a way that allows the client to begin to interact with them and then healings can occur. It's been, a, it really, I have to say, that's another whole podcast. It's been a, a, a really miraculous journey. Um, I believe that I'm still on the planet because of finding reconnective healing, honestly. Um, yeah. I, I think that it, it changed my life in such amazing and significant ways and really made me into the person that I end up, you know, being. Um, and also, permeates all the rest of my life, including my client relations in my, in my design business and my, you know, my interpersonal relationships, everything has happened has really evolved because of this part of my evolution in which is reconnected. I think you that's know, a, I want to check this out because I, I have to do my gyrotonic uh, uh, continuing ed and massage. Like, I start adding up, but I go, I don't want to spend money on things I'm not going to use. Because you have to get your certain hours. I'm like, but it feels like um, duty as opposed to like, because right. I usually do myofascial because that's what I mainly do. That's where I found my place. But I know that this connects in that too, because of it all well, overlaps it, when you, when you don't we analyze We have trained it. so many, <clears throat> I've trained so many massage therapists, myofascialists, fascial people, um, Reiki practitioners, um, and, and also broader, broader helping professions like psychiatrists and doctors and nurse practitioners and midwives. And I mean, oh, wow. um, and it, the, the way that this consciousness works is that once you become aware of it, you, you really are in essence carrying it. And, and through that, that access that you have naturally, it comes through you in your work. So I, we have I've many, many massage therapists, for example, who just say, yeah, I don't even have to think about it, but it switches on when it needs to. It knows it yeah. knows come through. And I, people say, I've been, I'll be working on someone all of a sudden I realize that we're in the middle of this significant reconnective healing experience or therapists, for example, who we have kind of, we've done a little sort of a mini study of, of therapists who about, I think that the number was somewhere around 80% of therapists recognize that their patients made significant changes after they took the, our training, even though they were not consciously bringing the frequencies into, they weren't sitting there like waving their hands at their clients as they're doing therapy. Yeah. Um, but they, they about 80% said that they really, they felt like that they had seen significant changes, improvements in their clientele just from wow. their being present in the room. So that's yeah. why I say the presence in the room, because you can tell when someone's checking out and that being present, I think, is something we all would, would make a huge difference in how we live. Correct. <laughs> I think most people are on to the next thing, not present in the moment. And I could be doing a massage thinking about what I have to do afterwards. I'm like, okay, that's not fair for the person on the table. But I, I'm going to check this out. Because when we first started, before we recorded, I go, ooh, I'm so excited to go into this part. Because, you know, you, all your experience so, back then, it all comes into what we do. Yeah, you can you can Google the reconnection. You can go to the reconnection website, www.thereconnection.com. Um, you can go to YouTube and look at the reconnection channel. You're going to see probably a decent number of interviews with me, as a matter of fact. And <laughs> the guy the guy who uh, originally brought it through is a chiropractor in Los Angeles named Eric Pearl. Um, 
And uh, yeah, it, as I say, it's really been a, a journey. I spent a lot of 20 years traveling to teach with Eric. Recent, in the last few years, I've really reeled it all in. And basically I have a home practice now. I see a few, I see a couple- I actually have to, I'm so sorry. I have to, I have to end, this is awful. My no electrician worries. that I've been waiting for two weeks to come, I have no heat, oh, is here. That's why the dog is freaking out and almost knocked a Christmas tree over. Um, Great. We went wanted, a little over too. I'm sorry about that. No, no, no. That was, I was having such a good time. I have to open the door before my dog knocks it down. We will reconnect. I would love to get photos and share all of yours. Uh, this will come out and we can like send links to all these things because um, I'm so sorry. Great. It's such an abrupt and loud ending. Not to worry. Will, Thank you so reconnect. much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And I will talk again. Talk to you soon.